Hi everyone and welcome back to another episode of Izulami. In this conversation, myself and Kumo had the amazing opportunity and pleasure of speaking to Dr. Cizwimpo for Welsh. We spoke about his new book, The New Apartheid. Apartheid did not die, it was privatized. In this conversation, we explore the various arguments that Dr. Cizwimpo makes regarding the privatization of apartheid post-1994. We speak about how apartheid lives and looks like in the different spaces in law as well as in technology. We hope that you enjoy this conversation. Hi, I'm Kumo. And I'm Natasha. Welcome to Izulami, the podcast, a platform that is passionate about Africa and telling African stories. Join us as we unpack all things African, ranging from business, culture, love, politics, and more. Our goal is to create inclusive and valuable archives of information for curious Africans. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode with Izolami. Today, we are joined by the amazing Dr. Sizwe Mbofu Welsh, and we'll be discussing his new book, The New Apartheid, with a very interesting and controversial topic. Uh, just to introduce him, Dr. Sizwe Mbofu Welsh is a South African author, scholar, musician, and producer. He holds a doctorate in philosophy in international relations from the University of Oxford. And in 2017, he published a book, his first book called Democracy and Delusion, um, which was accompanied by a 10-song rap album of the same name. Um, Sizwe is currently a postdoctoral fellow at the Vers Institute for Social and Research Justice and uh, would like to welcome him uh, to today's conversation. Thank you for joining us, Sizwe. Glad to be with you. Thank you so much for the invitation. So we'd like to start off with our favorite um, conversation that we ask all of our guests on our podcasts. Could you please give mm. us just an overview of who Sizwe is um, outside of all of the accolades from a personal perspective? What are your passions and what is your body of work? I suppose... All of my work is united by uh, a love of the use of language. And ultimately, I think all forms of expression, though they seem different on the surface, whether that's artistic, whether that's musical, whether that's literary, boil down to an attempt to try and use some form of language to convey an idea and a message. And uh, I've always been fascinated with how we can take ideas in our own minds and and use them to persuade or influence or inspire other people. Um, so I like doing that musically. I like doing that uh, persuasively, and and I like doing that in a, in a scholarly way too. So uh, language is one of my great passions, or the use of language, and I'm constantly fascinated by. How to, how to use language in ways that convey a message. There are so many others. Uh, I could probably go on all day, um, but that I think is probably the most relevant passion for present purposes. 
And I think, you know, the way in which you've actually written your book is actually a true testament to everything that you've said. But Susan, I think, you know, jumping into the main purpose of today's conversation is to discuss your new book, um, The New Apartheid. Apartheid did not die. Mm. It was privatized. And between myself and Kumo, when you came out with the book, we were like, okay, we definitely need to get it. Did this challenge ourselves between the two of us? to read something that is not usually within our scope of interest. And then oh. when you said, you know, you're open for conversation, we were like, yes, <laughs> we're definitely going to get him <laughs> and let's, <laughs> let's get him on our podcast. But since we're, you know, Great. going through this book and reading your book, it's quite an intensely philosophical body of work. And mm. it is one that requires deep thinking and some level of intellectual rigor, right? And, you know, especially mm. when we look and examine at some of the arguments that you make when it comes to you saying that apartheid didn't die, it was actually privatized. You know, going into how you analyze the fact that, you know, you say that it basically adapted post-1994 um, into the current way of how we are living as a society. And through your entire book, you then try to examine and unpack different areas in which you are saying that, you know, this is how it's actually come, coming alive. But without, you know, me mm. or myself, myself or Kumo going into much detail from the beginning, could you maybe tell us a little bit about what the purpose was, you know, for you writing this book and why it was so important to actually release such a body of work? Well, thanks. And I think f to the first part of your question, although this is a book uh, which tries to convey an idea, you have picked up on another ambition, which is not related so much to the argument, but that I, I wanted. I wanted the writing to be interesting and I, I wanted you to go on an intellectual journey where you you learned new words and you you picked up different uses of language that you know mm. would delight um quite apart from the actual substance and um I think I hope that this book has helped me to grow as a writer and that was one of the the most fascinating parts of the journey of writing the book, quite apart from the substance. But in terms of the substance, I published my first book, Democracy and Delusion, in 2017. And that book was a set of 10 essays on a range of questions that were making headlines. So there was an essay on corruption, there was an essay on Marikana, there was an essay on whether it was feasible to have free education, etc. Mm. And although I learned a lot in that process about how to write a book and you know how to write for a public audience, when I came out of that project, I had a nagging sense that beneath the headlines and beneath the the news cycle, there is a deeper crisis that we have not yet fully and properly defined and been brave enough to name. And so in my next project, I wanted to go a layer deeper and try to frame and define what I think is the central crisis which underpins 
the more superficial symptoms of that crisis, which we see in our news in our newspapers every day. And mm. so that was the ambition. It was to try for a new generation to reframe and re-envisage what the central crisis is that confronts South Africa. And that crisis I call the new apartheid. So I think that it's very interesting that you mention um, that the central wanting to re-envision and recall this crisis that we call the new apartheid. Um, because I think my next question was, why is it so important to unravel this word um, apartheid? And I think you've had conversations with it um, mm. in a previous, in the in the book launch when you were talking to Dr. Stembila about how we have numerous discussions about the impact of colonialism and uh, white supremacy. But from a South African context, I think we avoid the conversation of using the word apartheid. So maybe taking us through the word and why you wanted us to open this wound um, of addressing the word apartheid and reliving it into our everyday vocabulary. Mm, absolutely. Well, as soon as I embarked on the project, I realized a paradox, and that was that apartheid seems to influence and affect every aspect of our lives. But at the same time, it often goes unspoken. So it seems to be everywhere and nowhere at the same time. And in many ways, the, the term is increasingly falling into disuse as we find new vocabulary to try and explain South Africa's uh, persistent problems. And I think that avoiding the term and allowing it to recede into the past is a grave error because that risks failing to appreciate how the past is influencing the present and may well influence the future. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to revive this term. And in doing so, I wanted also to demonstrate the depth of the apartheid project itself, which I think we have uh, stylized. And mm -hmm. we have failed to appreciate firstly, how complex that, pro that project is and was, mm -hmm. and also how ambitious it is and was. And so for just, just two examples, one is that we often think that apartheid was just uh, a question of racial separation. Mm -hmm. And actually, the more I tried to understand the term, the more I realized that it's actually not so much a question of crude separation. It's actually a philosophy which is about bringing different people who are very intimately related, but at the same time separated. So the external borders of South Africa push us all together, but our internal borders push us apart so that we can, we can brush shoulders with people of different races on a day-to-day -day basis. They can even be inside our homes, but mm. we, never truly, we never truly go across the internal borders so it's intimacy and separation at the same time. And that, that took a long time to engineer. Um, and then just finally, uh, another example was that apartheid is often viewed as a purely racial uh, phenomenon. But the more I delved into it, the more I realized that although race was the explicit 
uh, ground on which people were were uh, divided. Uh, this was also uh, an ideology of gender engineering, um, of the engineering of people's sexualities, and mm. in many ways, uh, using race as a pretext for a deeper social project which affected uh, race, gender, sexuality, and a whole host of other identities. And I think you beautifully um, explore and expand on exactly that in like the the rest of the areas within the book itself where you speak about space, law, wealth, technology, etc. And I think what I particularly liked is how with each particular section or area of exploration, you start off by talking about it at the broadest or the macro level of it before trying to make the connections to apartheid and, you know, how those are actually linked. So, you know, speaking about how we are living in like these security states, but we actually don't even know each other at that level, but we are somehow protected by these big walls, you know, um, and mm. the exploration of technology. But Cesar, I think, you know, something that I really was wanting to understand from you is, you know, as we explore some, as you were exploring, not as we, but as you were exploring some of these areas, um, I think one could actually bring up the argument to say, but is it really an apartheid nuance? You know, the fact that, for example, when you talk about algorithms um, in the technology section of the book, um, you know, I think that's, a pandemic that's plaguing everyone across the globe and how these algorithms are set and how they are wildly biased towards uh, people of color. But, mm. you know, just maybe explain to us why that link is important to the apartheid, um, you know, um, area, I guess, that you're trying to explore mm. within the book. Well, that's an important point that you raise and, at various points in the book, I tried to reflect on how global trends can affect South Africa and, in fact, how South African trends can sometimes affect the world at large. And I would accept that the question of algorithmic bias, which I go into at some length in the chapter on technology, is not a problem that's confined to South Africa. Mm. But South Africa and its own history of racial and various other forms of oppression mean that the way algorithmic bias works in South Africa serves to reinforce the patterns of apartheid which have already been laid. So that a global problem takes on a very particular local dimension when it applies in the South African context. So one example um, to be quite tangible is the principle of homophily, which is a principle that underlies a lot of social media. And this principle is basically mm. that you are likely to be friends with people who are similar to you, right? And it's all well and good to create an algorithm which uh, predisposes you to discover and meet and find people who are similar to you out there in, in the wide world. But in South Africa, when you start... Uh, tailoring an algorithm to make you find people who are similar to you, well, that means you're going to find people who are racially similar to you, who live in mm -hmm. similar areas to you, 
And that's mm-hmm. going to map onto apartheid systems of segregation and a, a past history of, of racial inequality. So the way that these global trends end up working in South Africa serves, serves to reinforce the new apartheid mm. in ways that it, it might not in other contexts. It's very interesting that you say that because when I read that, I immediately went to Instagram, interestingly, to check my feed mm. and the recommended. And I mean, obviously, this is something that we've been aware of, but you can see immediately your algorithm changes slightly if you follow possibly mm. someone who's outside of your race that they wouldn't ordinarily match you with, right? But yeah, the algorithm yeah. always tries to revert you back to initially what it is that you're supposed to what a pattern mm. says you're supposed to be attracted to. Um, mm. So, I mean, that was very interesting. I want to go back to, and I suppose, the criticism that has been going on about um, the section mm. on law and the constitution, um, which I oh, found very... Sorry? Don't get me started. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it was very interesting. And I mean, <laughs> anyway... Um, so my this is very interesting for me um, because there's a point that you make about how the con- how constitution and privatization has really moved um, the concept, removed the concept of social justice and not focusing on social justice and moved it to a sense of social responsibility, right? And this is essentially just the mm-hmm. workings also of economics and um, the concept of that a person is an individual and, and therefore a rational individual and removing all other concepts that are involved um, or that contribute to the mechanisms of a person, the demographics that they live in and the life that they have. But Hmm. I want to go back to the question that you asked about, can the constitution reverse the new apartheid? Um, Hmm. And maybe um, making us understand why you're asking that question and why you believe that it can't. For people who have not read the book, um, and wouldn't understand what the criticism sure. is about that section specifically. Mm-hmm. Well, a great ambition of the book is to puncture this myth that South Africa represents some kind of miracle and that after 1994, we are living in the afterglow of that miracle. And anything that deviates from that miraculous narrative is basically put down to uh, you know details that need to be ironed out but ultimately South Africa is on the right trajectory and nothing can stop it from eventually reaching a destination of justice and and emancipation and I'm afraid when I look around um, I'm not sold on on that on that story and the Constitution, is the text which embodies that narrative most obviously. In fact, it's kind of like the text that proves the story to many people. Mm. And what I try to do is take a close reading of the way that the Constitution both narrates South Africa's past and envisages the concept of justice in the future. And what I, the conclusion that I come to is, is that I think that the Constitution is wanting, both in the way that it explains how South Africa arrived at the need for the new Constitution. You know, it says, for example, in the preamble that 
we merely, quote, recognize the injustices of our past. Well, mm-hmm. what does that mean? What injustices? Who is the subject of this injustice? Are we talking about apartheid, colonialism, uh, the grave injustices that have been visited on women? Uh, which injustices? Um, is it the injustices of the South African war at the transition to the 20th century? I just mm. find that that to be vague, uh, yeah. too vague. You know, we, we, we need to uproot apartheid. That's what we need to do. Um, mm. and, and merely uh, glossing over South Africa's history like that, um, I think is, is inadequate. And then I look at where you find a conception of justice in the constitution, not just a narrow procedural justice, but uh, a wider conception of, of justice per se. And again, I don't think that the constitution espouses an ambitious enough conception of justice to contend with the sheer scale of injustice in South African society. And, and so I just also want to enter one caveat, because when you start to talk about the Constitution, you end up touching people on their constitutional studios. Mm. And, uh, <laughs> and, and people become very defensive because they're very invested in yeah. the myth of the Constitution. And I'm not seeking to suggest that the constitution is worthless and it's not worth the paper it's written on and we should throw it away. I'm trying to take a more optimistic perspective and say, well, is the constitution the perfect conception of justice? Mm. And if it isn't, how could we get it closer to that conception? Instead of saying, well, the constitution is the best uh, thing since legal sliced bread and we can never improve on it, how can we reimagine our society for the future in ways that transcend the conception we currently have in our minds? So I'm not trying to rain on anyone's constitutional parade. I'm just trying to say, could we maybe go even further than we have gone? And uh, that's essentially the case that I make. So so the question, I guess, is where, you know, for the layman like myself, laywoman, is so how... Do we go about, you know, uh, unpacking and trying to create a more transformational um, constitution that really stares down this animal for what it is? You know, because I think, mm. you know, in, in the media, as you released the book and you've been, you know, numerous shows and co- had numerous conversations about it, there has been this mixed mm. bag of um, criticism, so to speak, that has come through where people are like, yes. This is amazing. And then, you know, there are people, especially from the older generation and people that have lived through the ills of of apartheid that are a bit skeptical mm. um, about, you know, the way mm. in which you've approached the, you know, the book and, you know, the way that you've uh, put forward your arguments. So the question is, so practically, how do we go about it? What are the first steps that we need to start doing and mobilizing as a society so that we can sit down in a room and say, okay, we're rewriting this thing and we are calling things for mm. what they are. Well, I think you touch on a really fascinating part of this whole project for me, which I didn't expect um, mm-hmm. because this book has honestly taken on an entirely uh, 
an entire life of its own um, and has, has, has just become something that exists separate from me, you know, and, <laughs> and so, <laughs> uh, and I dare say uh, most of the people for whom this book is, is now a cultural symbol have not actually re- even read the book, you know, so it's mm. like the book Shit. exists as a cultural symbol because people have seen it or they've heard about it or, or they know it exists. Mm. But that is often very much distinct from the arguments that I'm actually making, which I think are quite mm. careful and considered. So it's a new experience for me, something I'm learning about where where like something that you create almost gets taken out of your hands and 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 lives lives almost separate from you, but it's connected to you. Um so mm. You live and you learn, I suppose. Um, what I will say about invoking apartheid in the older generation is that in the book I do at length explain why I'm using the term and yeah. I appreciate the gravity of the term. And nonetheless, I still think it applies and is applicable because of the gravity of the situation in South Africa at the moment. And Essentially, I say that although older, an older generation of South Africans might look at our generation, well, wait, let me not assume that we're in the same generation. I might be older. Uh, <laughs> we are. We are. Uh, okay. Just to be okay. clear. <laughs> okay, good, good, good. A uh, few. Um, but <laughs> yeah, <laughs> at least I didn't say younger. Uh, so, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> like I, I think uh, a future a person living in the future uh, and we might get onto this later because that's who I wrote the book for people were like who is your audience my audience is someone in the future who's mm. looking back on South Africa so Ooh. I tried to write it to a level of of honesty where I know this might sound morbid, but once I'm gone, like someone in the future will pick this up and be like, wow, okay, this person, this person wasn't afraid. Yeah. Mm. Um, And Hmm. who knows if I lived up to that, but that was the goal. Um, And so I think someone in the future looking back on South Africa will be like, yeah, of course, apartheid was still around. Like what you thought they got rid of it. Hmm. Like, no, apartheid lived on for quite a while until they really got serious about, you know, really uprooting it. But when we live through this moment from our particular vantage point, because we're so drenched in the miracle narrative, it almost feels Mm. blasphemous to even use the word uh, for an Mm. older generation. Uh, And, and that's just what we have to do. uh, And sometimes we have to, uh, we have to contest the, the myths of the older generation. Um, because we know uh, how dramatically they failed us. Yeah, I you um, know I think I, I didn't even get to the practical steps, but we'll get there. We'll get there. Would do you want to go into the practical steps? Let's. I think let's. Okay, sure. Because um, I appreciate that 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 is an, a question which arises immediately, but I I almost think it's the subject of a whole other book. Um, mm. And I have to be honest, I don't know. I don't know um, 
what on earth we do with this. Um, hmm. And my goal was first to define the crisis. Uh, and I think that that step is really, really important. And it actually comes out of my reading of apartheid because what fascinated me was that in hindsight, it looks like everyone knew that apartheid was the problem. But defining apartheid as the central problem in the 20th century actually took decades and decades. First, people mm. thought, no, maybe we'll get like a native representative in parliament other people thought, no, the problem is just economic. Uh, we don't need the vote. Some people thought we needed the vote. Others mm. thought that this was a religious problem. And it took generations of thinkers and activists and scholars to, to say, hold on, hold on. This is the problem. Apartheid is the problem, the whole thing. Mm. And it feels like after 1994, we have again allowed the problem to become complicated and dispersed. And we need to, again, uh, and this is going to be a collective project, no one can do this on their own, is, is find ways of, of redefining the crisis so that we can, we can launch and mount uh, a struggle against it. And mm-hmm. so in the conclusion of the book, I, I mention you know, that effectively what I'm calling for, and again, I can only really sketch this because I think it's still very early and it, it might not even happen in our generation, um, is... Yeah. We need a new republic. That's how ambitious we need to be. And what we're living through now would be the first republic, but we need to create the second democratic republic. And that republic needs to build on the gains of the first, but transcend the errors of the first. And that means uprooting whatever we have to uproot in order to get there. Hmm. Interesting. So, shoot, you know, See, so I think may, possibly, dare I say, maybe there is a different, there's a, uh, a new concept that should have been added after, you know, law and wealth and technology, etc., which is possibly psychology, mm. because mm, I think even mm. even in the reckoning or the questioning of, of, of the concept of the fact that you're questioning, um, you know, our democracy, and you're questioning the fact mm. and you are you're revealing that our problem fundamentally is still apartheid, I think is a psychological problem for us to be fighting that, right? Um, mm. The fact that we still think we are living continuously in this rainbow nation, that we are progressive, that we have, you know, power and anatomy is essentially just mm. part of this very well-engineered concept of apartheid. Mm. Um, mm. Yes. Mm. Um, and so, I mean, I think possibly maybe there could be something else to be explored as part of it, but mm. there's something else that I noted that was very interesting, but let me not digress. We're moving into municipal elections now, and mm. you put a very interesting passage on the privatization of the ANC, which is very interesting because mm. it's also that very quite get frightening. Me in trouble. Yeah, <laughs> especially because you speak about the king of the capitalist. That was my favorite uh, phrase. I'm going to use it everywhere. Um, <laughs> so why was it important to note, to, to, to make us aware of the privatization of the ANC? And I mean, I was aware of that, but I think it's an, it's an important conversation to have going into the elections mm. so that we can, we can understand um, the connection between power and money, 
Mm. And the fact that the ANC is is fundamentally benefiting as a as a as a lone body, as an individual kind of entity that is away from the country, that is separate from the country. Um, so maybe try to um, take us through the privatization of the ANC and why and why you you say you say that the ANC is privatized. Mm, mm. Well, this is a really key aspect of the book that you bring up because I've noticed and back to this idea that the book uh, exists separate from the text. Um, many people see the title. Um, and see the debate on social media and assume that because the book is called The New Apartheid, that I'm somehow trying to shield the ANC from accountability and I'm deflecting onto apartheid and not actually criticizing the ANC for its own uh, litany of failures. But those who read the book, I think, will see that, you know, nothing could be further from the truth. And Mm -hmm. this is... uh, a damning critique of the ANC to say that the new apartheid persists is to say that the ANC has failed at dealing with it. And not only that, I I go further and I say that the ANC has become complicit in the new apartheid. Um, And the privatization of the ANC is one of the key illustrations of this. What I demonstrate is that after 1994, the boundary between the the liberation movement pursuing a public cause and apartheid economic forces pursuing private gain became blurred. And in fact, the ANC became enmeshed and entangled in apartheid economic privilege. And Mm -hmm. apartheid economic privilege became enmeshed and entangled in the ANC. Hmm. On both sides. So you had ANC leaders going to sit in uh, corporate boardrooms. Mm. But you also, you also had corporate interests influencing ANC policies and disproportionately beginning to turn the ANC towards its own priorities, uh, corporate interests priorities in many cases. And, hmm. uh, well, I hope I don't get you into too much trouble, but uh, I, I, I think that President Cyril Ramaphosa personifies this, uh, who more than he has sat both at the top of the, of the economic structure and the political structure at the same time. So the office of the presidency now is both uh, political and an economically um, uh, a symbol of this of this privatization of the ANC and the publicization mm. of, of apartheid capital. Um, and this, I think, explains uh, a great deal of what has sometimes been called state capture. Mm. What is that ultimately? Well, I mean, I think that's a narrow way of framing what's been happening since 1994. What ultimately Ooh. it is is that the, the ANC has been subverted by private interests. Yeah. And sometimes that means uh, narrow forms of corruption, but other times it's not as obvious as you know crude corruption. It's just the ANC's priorities, which interests it serves and which interests it doesn't serve. And that process of privatization uh, and the revolving door between the ANC and capital 
I think, lies at the heart of the ANC's betrayal since 1994. You know, Sizwe, I just want to be honest with you and say, the moment you said you were hoping that you're not going to get us into trouble, myself and Kuma looked at each other and we're like, well... (laughs) (laughs) What exactly are we supposed to say after that comment? (laughs) Yeah, I I hereby state that those are my views and not the views of Izuelami. Yes, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much, Susan. Honestly, um, (laughs) this has been, I think, one of our most interesting conversations, not only because, you know, we were intellectually challenged um, and had to show up a little bit more differently and more elevated um, through... (laughs) From the beginning, you know, right from like reading the book itself and, you know, through this Mm. conversation. But I think like personally, we've learned a lot and we're probably going to go revisit some of the pages where we've made pencil markings um, just to unpack Mm. that a little bit further. But honestly, you know, between I think I speak for Kumo as well, that this was an amazing, amazing read for uh, for for the both of us. And it's something that we would definitely continue to um, advocate for people to to pick up this book and to also go through it and, you know, find their own understanding of it. So I think just like in closing, just like a big thank you. Sorry, I just have I mean, I I found this passage and I think it's really important to read it out loud, but also so to make you aware, Cesar, that I think this is probably part like it's part of the conclusion but literally the most important Mm. text that is because I think this says a lot about how most of us have been feeling as um young Mm. people of color Mm. millennials living in this country Mm. and still feeling disenfranchised so it's Mm. uh part of the global question that says this book challenges the idea that democracy combats injustice and inequality The vote cannot fix what denying the vote has broken. Voting, even the bold constitutional guarantees, is no guard against the rapacious appetite of entrenched power. Nominal rights and formal protections shrivel under the weight of unspoken conventions and undeclared alliances. Democracy is not the antithesis of apartheid. It is not the antithesis of injustice. It is not the antithesis of inequality. All these evils can survive under democracy's shroud. And yet, it's tempting to believe that political equality automatically leads to social and economic equality. The logic is seductive. Giving votes to previously disenfranchised people means they can shift policy by articulating their rights. Over time, these interests manifest into substantive substantive equality in the economic and social spheres as elites are toppled. Yeah, that was powerful, powerful, powerful. Thank you, powerful. Uh, Thank you you for that. And I think it's something we need to remember going forward. Um, Thank you, Natasha. Yeah, I appreciate that. I really appreciate the reading, but I also appreciate what uh, what you said earlier about the book. Uh, It's Mm. really gratifying to see people reading it and engaging with it, agreeing and disagreeing and debating it. Um, So thank you for that. I, I really do appreciate. I really do appreciate it. Thank awesome. you. Thank you so much, Sizwe. Uh, please have a great day further. And yeah, thank you so much for the chat. And we look forward to stalking you so we can get our book signed. 
Mine is already signed. I just want to say I went and I got a signed copy. I just so you know. <laughs> oh, brilliant! Okay, cool. Well, there you go. There you go. So, uh, awesome. Well, uh, yeah. Just as long as it's not algorithmic stalking, that's fine. <laughs> It'll be organic. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you so much, Suze, for this chat. Okay. Thanks, Natasha. Thanks, Kumo. All awesome. the best, Israelami. Thank, Thank you. you.